Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you stood out like a sore thumb? You know the sort of thing I mean when a person looks like they don't really belong in a particular place. Now, as a dad of three girls, this sort of thing happens to me from time to time. Last year, we visited Disneyland, Florida, and we were standing in a queue to meet Princess Aurora. (laughs) Justine's parents had taken our youngest, Rebecca, so it was just me and Justine and the older two, and then one pipes up, Mummy, I need the toilet. Then the other one, me too. So off Justine goes to find a bathroom, and there I am, a 32-year-old man, queued up to see Princess Aurora. And I'm getting nervous because the queue starts to move, and it seems to be moving quite quickly, and I'm nearly at the front, and I can see the Disney staff kind of giving me sideways looks because I stand out like a sore thumb. They don't say anything. They're too professional for that, but I can see it on their faces. What's he doing here? This is for kids. Does does he not know? This guy must be pretty strange. And then at the last moment, the girls return, and I get to the front of the queue, and I see the realization on their faces. Now, if you're familiar with John's gospel, this story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman, it mightn't jump off the page at you. But it's worth pointing out that for the first readers of John's gospel, this story would have stood out. Even for readers who were familiar with Jesus, Up to this point in John, we've had his great prologue. He's told us about John the Baptist, about Jesus calling his first disciples, the first miracle, the nighttime meeting with Nicodemus. And we've had this kind of shift from a focus on John to a focus on Jesus. And we thought about that last week. Now, if John's first readers weren't already captivated by all that Jesus was doing, this woman would have caught their attention because she stands out like a sore thumb. Everything about this woman at the well it just seems wrong. For a start, she's a woman, and obviously I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with being a woman. I know better than to say that. But the interaction between men and women in the first century in the Middle East is quite different to what it is in Belfast in 2023. We get a little hint of it in the reading in verse 27 when the disciples come back. John says, just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman they're surprised to see it. Now, it's not that men and women couldn't talk to each other or interact with each other. It's the fact that they're alone together. If you think about the interactions between Jesus and women in the Bible, usually there are other people around. Think of the woman who who broke the jar of perfume and, and anointed him at Bethany. You know, people are very unimpressed and they tut and they mutter and all of that, but there's no accusation of anything untoward going on. But for a man to be left alone with a woman who wasn't his wife, well, that left the two of them open to accusation. So Jesus puts himself here into a socially dubious position by speaking to a woman alone. And not just any woman, a Samaritan woman. And clearly she's as surprised as anyone. In verse 9, she says to Jesus, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And the implication of that is that they wouldn't have shared drinking vessels together. So it wouldn't really have been right for Jesus to ask her for a drink. This is an old ethnic division. It goes back into the Old Testament when the nation of Israel split into the northern ten tribes and and Judah in the south. And some from Israel went out and they married uh, women and people from other nations and they worshipped their gods and committed idolatry. 
And the Judeans in the south in particular wanted nothing to do with these people. Jesus is interacting with somebody in this story, but it just seems all wrong. She just stands out like a sore thumb. She's a woman, she's a Samaritan, and both of them are in the wrong place at the wrong time. Jesus is tired, and he sits down by this well, and the woman is there drawing water. But verse 6 tells us it's the middle of the day. It's about the sixth hour, which is about noon. And you didn't go to draw water in the middle of the day. This is the Middle East. It's the middle of the day, high 30s, maybe low 40s. It wasn't a time to be carrying a load of water. The other woman of the town would have come out to get water in the morning, just as the sun was coming up when it was much cooler. But here she is, alone, at noon. It's just all wrong. So why does it happen? Well, there's a very subtle clue in the text, at least as to why Jesus was there. In John chapter 4, verse 3, it says that Jesus was leaving Judea, going back to Galilee. And then in verse 4, it says this, now he had to go through Samaria. Now, my Middle Eastern geography isn't good. In fact, my geography isn't good. But you don't have to look at a map too hard to see that you don't have to go that way. You can't go that way. And from the roads that were around at the time, it probably was the shortest, the most efficient way. But you didn't have to. And many Jews probably would have avoided going through Samaria. But the language here, the verb in this sentence in the Greek, it's used seven other times in John's gospel. And every time it relates to some kind of divine action. He had to go. He had to be handed over and killed and crucified. He had to. It's, it's part of God's plan every time John uses this word. It's a divine thing. So when it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria, he had to because he had to meet this woman because it was God's will. It was God's doing. It was a divine appointment. Everything about the story seems wrong, but, but God wanted it to happen. She stands out. She doesn't belong for so many reasons, but Jesus just had to see her. Now, that's what took Jesus there, but why was she there in the first place? Well, we get the explanation when we see the interaction between Jesus and the woman. Jesus says that he can give her living water. She misunderstands him. She takes him literally. You know, that sounds good, water, so I wouldn't have to come back here in the heat of the day. Yes, give me that. But then Jesus gets to the heart of the issue. He says, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she says. Real politician's answer, you know, technically true, but not quite the whole truth. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you're with now, he's not your husband. What you've said is quite true. This woman is suffering the consequences of guilt and shame. If you want to know the difference between guilt and shame, well, guilt is just the record of having done something wrong. I did this thing. Therefore, I'm guilty. It's on my record. But shame is the identity of being a sinner. Maybe it's best told by example. You know the story of the prodigal son. You know, he, he takes his inheritance early. He goes away off before his father has died. He goes, he squanders it all. He comes to his senses. He comes back to the father and he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. That's guilt. I've sinned. I've done wrong. Then he says... I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's shame. That's the identity. Not only do I have a guilty record, but I, I carry it around with me. It affects who I am. I can't be your son anymore. And this woman is guilty. 
We know that in this culture, teenage girls married men who were often much older. So it is quite believable that maybe she married an older man. He died. She might have married again. Maybe even her second husband died and she married a third time, but married five times. And the man she's with now isn't her husband. Maybe there have been other men we're not told. But she has this sin, a sexual sin. That's her guilt. But she also has her shame. That's what stops her from going out with the other woman at the start of the day. Maybe she's been married into their families, some of them. Maybe that's not ended well. Maybe there's been infidelity. It's quite possible that if she had gone out first thing with the other woman, that they would have mistreated her verbally, maybe even physically, pushing her or hitting her. I'm not condoning it, but in a shame culture like the Middle East in the first century, it's very possible that it was a matter of personal safety. She has to go in the middle of the day instead. Guilt and shame. But Jesus goes out of his way to have this encounter. He has to go this way. And Jesus offers her eternal life. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst, he says. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. As I say, she she gets it all wrong at first. She takes him literally. Well, I don't like coming here in the middle of the day. Give, Give me this living water. She doesn't quite get it. But even so, Jesus offers her living water. But then we find out something else about this woman, and if she already stood out like a sore thumb, this is maybe the most unexpected thing of all. Okay, she's led a sinful life. She carries around guilt and shame, but this woman is searching for answers. There have been some clues up to now. Clearly, she's searching in life in all the wrong places for fulfillment, but there's more to her than that, and we, we can't write her off spiritually. We can't write anyone off spiritually. The Bible tells us that God has set eternity in the heart of every person, and he set eternity in this woman's heart. She asks this question about worship. She can see that Jesus is a prophet because he's just told her everything about her. So she asks him a theology question. And again, if we're familiar with the story, we don't really think about that, but it's really quite remarkable. She asks a question about worship. We Samaritans, we we trace our history all the way back to Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, just as much as you Jews do. And we know that they sacrificed in this mountain, but you say we have to worship in the temple. There's been this dispute between the Jews and the Samaritans for a long time. It's, it's a dispute which is still alive in a, in a slightly different form in 2023. So she asks the woman, which is it? Which is right? How does proper worship happen? How can I worship properly? How do I get right with God? What's the way to know him and worship him? And Jesus gives her a wonderful answer. Look with me at verse 21. He says, Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. There's a bit of a translation debate there about whether it should be spirit with a small s or spirit with a capital S. But 
we don't need to get bogged down in that. The point Jesus is making is the same. Since God is spirit, he's not constrained to a particular place. He did choose to reveal himself that way in the past in the temple, but Jesus is going to change things. Remember in John 14, when Jesus is breaking the news to the disciples that he's going to go, he promises that he's going to send them the Holy Spirit. And when he died, the, the curtain in the temple was torn in two, symbolizing that the worship of God wasn't going to be restricted to that temple or to the mountain or to anywhere anymore. And so now we worship wherever we are in our own bodies, which are temples of the Holy Spirit. Jesus doesn't just promise the Spirit. He tells the disciples what the Spirit is going to do. He will remind you of everything I've told you, he says. He will guide you into all truth. And these two aren't two different things. They're the same because Jesus has been guiding them into all truth. So in other words, when Jesus says that true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth, they're going to worship him because he's the one who's paved the way for the Holy Spirit to be poured out into their lives. He is the personification of truth. He's the way, the truth, the life. Jesus offers this guilty, ashamed sinner water, living water, to wash away her guilt and her shame so that she can know eternal life, life to the full, worshiping in the spirit and in truth, worshiping Jesus. So what of it? This woman who seems to be in the wrong place offered eternal life by Jesus. Maybe the scene seems very far away from Ravenhill in 2023. But this offer of living water, of, of life free from sin and guilt, isn't limited to this one Samaritan woman. She goes out and brings others. Jesus gives this living water to us today, and we can know freedom from guilt and shame. Maybe today you're somebody who can identify very much with this woman. The sin is probably different. But even so, maybe if Jesus came your way, you'd think, no, he's, he's got the wrong person. He's in the wrong place. You, you don't feel like you belong with him. You don't think you're the sort of person that he would seek out. And you're maybe even like this woman in the sense that you're, you're searching. You're in church today. You have some sense that this is where you need to be, where you want to be, that there's something right about what goes on here, about the worship and the teaching, that this is the way to eternal life. But you still don't know Jesus yet. You feel like there's something you haven't quite worked out yet. Something hasn't quite clicked. You maybe feel that your sin is different to other people's, that the people in church probably haven't done some of the things that you've done. You're not sure it could really be for you. Well, I want to tell you today that this really is for everyone. Jesus says, everyone who drinks this physical water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water in, that I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. If you trust today that Jesus took the sin of the world upon himself at the cross, that he rose from the dead again, then you can know freedom from guilt and shame and the promise of life with him forever. And the response is simply to worship him. Now, of course, I realize that today, in many cases, I am preaching to the converted. But I think a lot of Christians today don't know freedom from shame. I think most of us get the guilt part. I've sinned. Jesus bled and died to take my sin away. I'm forgiven. I get that. But I think a lot of Christians still live 
with an unhealthy dose of shame. Walking around feeling like we're not worthy to be Christians, that we're not good enough. We think, how come as a Christian, I keep on struggling with that sin? How come as a Christian, I struggle with maybe my mental health? How come as a Christian, I get so worried about life? Didn't Jesus tell us not to do that? And so even though we know on one level that we're forgiven people, we still live with shame because of our sin. And in one sense, we're in good company. The Apostle Paul, he struggled with sin. Romans 7, very famously, he says, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For the good I want to do, I don't do, but the evil I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. And he becomes exacerbated and he concludes, what a wretched man I am. We sang words that echo that, that saved a wretch like me. Paul says, who will rescue me from this body of death? But then he goes on, thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So many of us live continuing to condemn ourselves, and we live with shame. But the amazing thing about this Samaritan woman and her encounter with Jesus is not only that her guilt is dealt with, but her sin as well, her shame as well. John 4, 28, Then leaving her water jar, the woman went into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Christ? No more shame. No more hiding from the people of the time. Guilt gone and shame gone. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. I always love that hymn. It's one of my favorites, but maybe we should also sing. When Satan tempts me to despair and makes me feel the shame within, Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinful Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. We can be free from our guilt and our shame. We can come to Jesus and receive this living water which will lead us to eternal life. But one final thing for those of us who drink of this living water. We have responsibility to bring others and to give them a drink too. This woman, she goes off and she brings others to Jesus. See what happens, verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that time believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two more days. And because of his words, many more became believers. Who are the people when you leave today having heard about living water? Who are the people that you'll go out and see today or tomorrow? The ones who'll ask you how your weekend was? You might say, oh, you know, I was at church yesterday. We don't really have a minister at the minute. We have the dodgy assistant for a few weeks. And he's going too. You can tell them what you thought about me. But then you might say, you know, I, I was really struck yesterday just that People search for answers in all kinds of different places. But I'm so glad that I know Jesus. I can't promise you that you'll get a good reception. But I do know that Jesus loves those people. And he has living water to give them. You might think that you're an unlikely messenger. 
You might think that the people that you'll bump into are unlikely converts, but this woman was both of those things, a very unlikely convert and probably an even more unlikely missionary. But the wonderful thing is that it's not down to us to save anyone. It says it in verse 41, and because of his words, many more became believers, not because of her words. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Jesus says the fields are ready for harvest. When people see Jesus for themselves, true worshipers, worshipers in spirit and truth are born. Freedom from guilt and shame becomes a reality and living water is given to people who were once very far from Jesus and it wells up to eternal life. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you came down from heaven to be the savior of the world. Lord, would you give each one of us a drink of that living water? Would you help us to know the reality of guilt and shame washed away? And Lord, in a world of thirsty people who are searching for answers but are lost without you, would you give us the courage to speak? Would you take away our shame? And would you be pleased to use us to draw others to yourself in your name and for your glory? Amen.